Hey everybody, uh, we are wrapping up our Summer of Lovecraft with a very special episode that is uh, about a video game uh, that also essentially was part of the reason this entire podcast exists. So this is a very uh, exciting episode for us to be able to present. And you know what else is exciting? Supporting art with your dollars. <laughs> if this is the last time we'll bust in uh, at the beginning of the episode for a little bit. But we did want to let you know, if you didn't get a chance to hear before, uh, we have started a Patreon like uh, literally every other podcast in the world. But just like we were very late to starting a movie podcast, we're also very late to starting a Patreon. If all of your Patreon budget hasn't already been allocated and you feel like helping us to keep the lights on and pay for some of the uh, costs in doing this podcast week in and week out, uh, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and you can find some fun tiers, a chance to pick some episodes, come on the show or to get a picture of Pete and Aaron that you can hang hopefully over your mantle, your fireplace or your bed. If your funds are already allocated and your accountant's like, no, damn it, not a chance. Uh, the other way that you can help us support the show is to go to uh to itunes and to leave us a hopefully positive review on itunes.com uh, i know that's something that you hear from every podcast and the thing is it really does help quite a bit so uh both for uh help us rise in uh searches and and getting people to find this podcast but also when people go and do find it and they want to see what their experience will be like listening to it they get a sense of that so uh thanks again for all of your uh listenership and support throughout the years and here's another way you could do that exact same thing uh with your with your with your walking around money uh or your time uh but thank you so much again for listening and again we are thrilled to be able to talk about bloodborne with andrew dar coming up right now i'm aaron armstrong i'm pete moran and i'm andrew dar and this is a special prequel episode of don't you dare don't you dar Prepare to die, Lovecraftian edition. Don't you dare, Origins. <laughs> yeah, Origins, bloodstain, the ritual of the moon. Welcome to the show. Uh, this, is, this is uh this is great to have Andrew back on. You're uh, well, we've, we've never had Andrew. We've never had Andrew on the show or any guests, Peter. This yeah. is this yeah, forget that's, uh, that's something yeah. very special about this show. But uh, one thing is uh, we're we're covering a, a little Lovecrafty stuff this month, and that's why we decided to we decided to fit together. Don't you dare dash don't you dar uh, into uh, the summer as a sort of one off. Um, because this is a very, very special episode for a lot of reasons, and this is, uh, Andrew, this is your second time on a We Love to Watch show, and not the first Lovecraftian monstrosity, because you did The Room with us. Yeah, and I think Tommy Wiseau is maybe the scariest thing imaginable. <laughs> having, having seen him in person, I, I, I fully stand by that. That's what H.P. Lovecraft said. He said the scariest thing in the world is the fear of the unknown Wiseau. 
So anyway, uh, yeah, but as Peter alluded to, nor, uh, so we're putting this in the middle of our We Love to Watch month uh, as a spinoff of We Love to Watch. That's a movie podcast where you pick a theme and do movies around that theme for the month. Um, and uh, that right now we're in the middle of doing Summer of Lovecraft, so Lovecraft adaptations. Don't You Dare is something we put on a couple episodes on where Peter and I dare each other to uh, experience a piece of media that we think the other person would like or just interested in their feedback on. So... We wanted to, so when, we, when it comes to Lovecraft adaptations, we've alluded to it on previous episodes, uh, Bloodborne is, while not a straight adaptation of a Lovecraft story, in a lot of ways it's just a full adaptation of, like, Lovecraft's uh, ideas. Uh, very specifically, not just, like, here's a, here's a part of it, it goes to everything from, like, the learned colleges to the idea of what happens when you gain so much knowledge to the idea of, like, eldritch gods who don't care about humanity but can have some level of contact, and it really is, like, this amazing, uh, it's one of my favorite video games of all time, if not my favorite, and also, like, the, I think the best possible adaptation of Lovecraft. So, and on top of that, it is, uh, it is kind of the reason why uh, Peter and myself became friends and started a podcast, and also the reason why we know Andrew so well. So, <laughs> it made sense, even though we we wanted to, we want to keep We Love to Watch uh, about video games, we really wanted to about have about our movies? time. About movies, yes, sorry. <laughs> um we, yeah, uh, it's just about video game adaptations and, for those, right? Yeah, we, we want to keep We Love to Watch about video games. We just are very bad at our jobs and we <laughs> have our, not been successful. Uh, but yeah, so uh, so we um, we really wanted to talk about this. And it made sense to kind of do it, even though we haven't done that many of the our little sidecast, Don't You Dare, because this really was the first version of that between Peter and myself, which is uh, as him and I started to talk more outside of the confines of the group uh this was a recommendation to him as i was almost i think i was almost done playing it peter when i recommended it to you uh and peter because i like talking to peter like i needed someone to talk to about this game uh that would have the same level of obsessive detail uh and so peter immediately kind of was on picked it up and started to kind of get as obsessed about every little nook and cranny. And then I think a, pr- a few months after that, uh, through something we recommended to you, Andrew, and then uh, myself and Andrew and Peter and Andrew, and sometimes as a group and sometimes one-offs got, got that level of obsessive about it as well. So, well, if, if I recall correctly, there was a lot of, like a lot of people were talking about it and I became intrigued but wary for a couple of reasons, which we can go into later. But when you guys heard that I was showing interest, you guys started making a big push. Yeah, we did. And you, I think you went to the same level of like obsessiveness. Oh yes. Uh, that, that we did. <laughs> There's, there, there is a lot of people in our kind of spinoff game group that have kind of gone through Bloodborne. And I feel like the, the amount, there's a lot of people that love it, but the amount of people that get that upset, because I think we recommended uh, Bonfireside Chat, which is this podcast that went through Bloodborne uh, in specifics, and then like Vaddy Video, uh, uh, YouTube videos that go into the lore, and that really like on another level, I think op- opened up the obsessiveness. So before, so we're going to get into kind of our personal history with it. Uh, we're going to get into how it ties into Lovecraft and a little bit about just why. Also, some of the gameplay aspects, uh, not just the lore and the story are very Lovecraftian, but there's a lot in how you play the game that kind of feeds into the idea of fear and knowledge and a lot of other things. 
But I think it probably would make the most sense uh, because, again, we normally do movies to talk a little bit about, if you don't know what Bloodborne is, uh, what what is Bloodborne? So I, I, I'll i start a little bit and then uh, I'll turn it over to each one because there's a lot to cover and we'll try to make this as quick as possible. But um, I'll start and then kind of turn it over to you guys to kind of finish the parts uh, where where I missed or things to fill in. Because there is, as one of the, the, the big differences between a two-hour movie and a 30-hour video game is that there's a lot of time to cover and we don't want to do a uh, eight-hour recap. So essentially, Bloodborne, though, is a, a movie that or a game that kind of tricks you into uh, – thinking it's not Lovecraftian horror, that it's more gothic horror. You are a hunter in a city on the night of the hunt where you are uh, killing uh, these creatures who uh, are turning into beasts. So it feels more like uh, like Mary Shelley type. Uh, London. It's very London-ass. It's very that sort of uh, aesthetic. Uh, and yeah, it's all like very Victorian. Very, very much so. Uh, you have a gun, you have some sort of hunting weapon, and you are tied to this dream state, which is the first thing that something is weirder than normal, which is uh, every time you die, you resurrect. You are basically uh, immortal. Uh, as you die, you wake up in this dream, in this hunter's workshop, with these, allow gives you these tools, because you are, a, you are a hunter of the hunter workshop, which uh, allows you to go back and try again and kill your beasts and everything else as you continue to gain more abilities and gain more knowledge about uh, the world. Uh, so I think one thing that should be said is that when when we say hunter, we don't mean it with a lowercase h. Like hunter is a specific type of person or role in this world. Yeah. And so a hunter is someone who is at some point connected to the hunter's dream. And hunters are given immortality because their job is so dangerous. Yes. Um, and what? Why there is? I'm going to back up now. Why there is a scourge of beasts is uh, there, there was a city called Yarnum, and underneath it there was these tombs. As people started going through these old tombs, they found a advanced civilization that had been wiped out also by a scourge of the beasts. Because this advanced civilization, or more advanced civilization, had found uh, gods. Uh, or evidence of gods, these kind of celestial beings. One thing that this game does really well that, that very much is Lovecraftian is that the gods are all different with different levels of goals, intelligence. They are gods are kind of a uh, a race, but that race uh, encompasses everything from like a formless, uh, uh, sightless being to like a true like sea uh, sea type Lovecraftian monstrosity. And it, and it's not like Greek mythology where yeah. gods specifically have like mythological or symbolic statuses that can be tracked onto like you know the sun god, the thunder god, and they yeah. can have like specific meaning when deployed in literature. The gods are supposed to be like Lovecraftian gods, uh, sort of unknowable. They don't track easily to like. Well, this god is the god for you know death and resurrection. This god is the god for water and life. Like it just doesn't it doesn't track that way. And yes, it is something that you could theoretically ascend to. Uh, yeah, in in theory, and that's where the game gets sticky. So actually, and um, and most of the gods at some point ascended into a kind of a dream world, a higher level of being. that can, And these dream worlds can be controlled, they can be separate, uh, they can pull in elements of the real world into them. Uh, one god did not ascend, a god by the name of Abridus, who uh, was eventually found by this college 
uh, who was uh, going through the tombs, led by someone named Master Wilhelm. They also discovered through this that uh, the blood of the of the god healed all sickness and all illness. Um, Master Wilhelm at the college uh, decided that uh, the blood was dangerous and that it should be feared and not used and that they should look to ascend into godhood themselves or to higher levels to evolve by uh, sewing eyes on the inside of their brain. Now, it's very unclear throughout the game, and I haven't even made a personal canon decision about whether it's literal eyes on the inside or a metaphorical idea of gaining more insight. Um, I, I think I, that he I think it's hoped it was metaphorical, but it ended up being literal. Very it much so. This is like a, an ir- ironic twist of fate that like he meant uh, almost like in a spiritual Eastern religion kind of third eye thing, which I guess while mentioning Eastern religion, Yarnum is not supposed to be like Gotham to New York to London, like for London. Yarnum is, it doesn't necessarily take place on Earth or within yeah. our Earth in any recognizable sense. It is, it is supposed to be in this sort of like isolated fantasy world. So I don't mean Eastern for them in a literal sense. I mean like yeah. in our version of like opening your third eye. And I think in like an ironic twist, gaining that much insight drove them all mad and uh, they started gaining actual eyes, which is why at the college, Bergenworth, um, which is sort of tracks onto Arkham College, yeah, uh, in the in the Lovecraft universe, a college where a lot of the it's sort of an MIT Harvard kind of thing. Like the best and the best and brightest minds end up getting into some mischief in their research. But yeah, they the, but that's why at Bergamoth College and, and in several other places, there's these monsters with eyes all over them. They're like these bug creatures. <laughs> yeah, and it's well, and, and, the, the, and literal buckets that you can knock over with eyes in them. Yeah, just <laughs> eyes everywhere. Yeah, so, eyes everywhere. So think about it, yeah. eyes. Versus this is this is going to be very simple, but think about it: eyes versus blood. One group is chasing eyes. One group well, is so chasing blood. <laughs> so yeah, so we should. So there were people that were like, "Hey, Master Wilhelm, this 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 uh, this blood cures everything. Clearly, that is our way to like ascend and to make communion with the gods." So there's a schism where uh, a person by the name of Lawrence decides to that they're going to essentially take a breedeth. Um, and uh, that blood is the way to go. Uh, so he found something called the Healing Church, which opens up Yarnum and basically makes Yarnum incredibly successful because now there's this church that is offering this cure all to all of its all of its citizens. There's also some stuff about that the the church in a place called Old Yarnum that the church may have poisoned the citizens so that they needed a cure. Uh, poison is something that's called ashen blood. And then what happened is that too much use of the blood uh, causes people to evolve into like beast creatures, which then need to be put down by the church. Eventually, old Yarnum got so out of hand, they burned it to the ground. And now basically when you start the game, it is happening in Yarnum. Uh, the healing church also has uh, essentially three sects that kind of were created out of it because Lawrence wanted to continue alternate all different ways to ascend. He was very much, I'm not going to limit myself. So there was the choir, which kind of continued a lot of the Bergenworth look into uh, eyes on the inside as well as blood. They are like, um, uh, they are very advanced and they are still trying to both, uh, they, they have, they're they the ones that are kind of controlling the god, Abridus, which is kind of in their basement, yeah. <laughs> sort of. And they are, uh, they are finding ways to communicate and talk to him. One of the ways that another person in the lore 
Bruin, uh, Carol Bruin uh, has has figured out how to do it is to uh, take the words of the gods, which are unknown by humans, and carve them into your brain for more knowledge. It's a whole other thing. But but anyways, uh, there's also the Hunters, which is what you're part of the Hunters Workshop, which eventually gets shut down in favor of church hunters uh, because it is the hunter workshop that eventually burns old Yarnum. People become aware of who they are and kind of turn against them. And then the church itself, uh, after Yarnum kind of gets out of control uh, with the Beast Scourge, shuts off the doors and sends people into the night to kill people. And they also do this great thing where they are like, or from a horror perspective, where they kind of convince the populace that they are also hunters to and to kill any neighbor that shows the sign of the beast. So by the time you're in Yarnum, there's all these fucking monsters hunting other monsters because that's basically what the church has reduced this down to. And then finally, there is the school of uh, Mensis, who is uh, basically uh, kidnapping people led by a person named Mikolash, who is kidnapping people and doing weird experiments to try to figure out who is, how to ascend. They also eventually get a umbilical cord. So essentially, umbilical cords of the gods are the way, to, or one of the ways to communicate in a lot of different. There's four total in the game, uh, and different people have them. Mikolash and his school eventually get an umbilical uh, cord, and um, they uh, they start uh, 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 talking to a, a different god named Murgo, and they the whole school ascends to the dream state and kind of the college moves there and stuff like that while all of their bodies uh, decay on Earth. And then uh, the end of the game... Can, can is, I pause real, real Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you guys to interrupt. Sorry, there's a lot of stuff to go through. So yeah, I wanna... so I want to pause re- real quick there. So the, the, we're talking about all these different approaches to ascend to godhood, to gain knowledge that you're not supposed to have... And all of this aligns really well with Lovecraft, who had a, a scientist's mind, uh, was going to pursue the sciences. He was actually being an astronomer, but he kind of bombed out of it because of specific acumen that he lacked. And uh, he kept and looking it, at the telescope by the wrong end. And no yeah, one corrected that, him and that'll get you. No, no one um, corrected him because no one was around because he was so scared of everyone. <laughs> and then he also got into chemistry, like Lovecraft was a scientist, but he's a scientist who was very weary of so the sciences discovery things that we should not know and so he wrote stories largely about learned ambitious people who fight tooth and nail and maybe make like horrific sacrifices as a lot of bloodborne's characters do to ascend to a higher level of knowledge and bloodborne kind of takes it an extra step i don't know of any lovecraft stories that are about people becoming gods but uh but the but the 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 people aren't just there's a lot of talk in Lovecraft about how to protect yourself from this knowledge, and it's largely, like, run in the other direction. These people in, in the Bloodborne universe are so ambitious that they, and they're so blinded by that ambition that, literally blinded, because there's a lot of uh, blind, blinding and, uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, covering your eyes kind of stuff going on with the symbolism in the, in the game, but um, that so blinded by their ambition that they think, oh, well, if I take this step, I can protect myself. So the yep. school of Mensis wears these cages on their head that they think will protect them, um, which all it means is that when you see them on the other side in this nightmare that they trapped themselves in, they've got cage heads. Uh, didn't no. help. Uh, and uh, who else? The the uh, There's people that are trying to, yes, uh, the, at the college, Bergamorth College, they're trying to gain insight, but instead it backfires and it transforms a lot of them into these eye monsters. Um, in the, in, in uh, Yahar Ghul, which is this this village that was supposed to be exist to um, abduct people for the re- for research of, of pursuing this this cause, uh, they ended up giving birth to this monstrosity 
uh, this one reborn, one reborn. Like, yeah. So, so there's well, this, and that's the thing. There just keeps backfiring. It's true, and this one of the great things about like this being why I think actually Lovecraft and like the the full flavor works better, almost better in a video game is because you you have time to pursue all of these little discrete but similar occurrences of mankind's interactions with these gods right so there's but but the but the overall thing is essentially that like anytime mankind interacts with these godlike creatures uh bad things happen there's also um i think that my favorite group is the choir because what they do is they run an orphanage and they kidnap children and experiment on them and throughout the game you start finding these weird creatures that look like Aliens, like um, like grays, like, almost. yeah, like almost like grays, but they're they're blue colored, and you're like and they're pretty weak, like they're yeah. pretty indiv- individually weak on a game, and level. they barely attack you, like they're they're more afraid of you, and you eventually realize that they're being that they're the children that the choir has is kidnapping, and the choir is trying to find a way to make people to make these children into um, children of one of the gods, the celestial emissary. When you're going around the choir's um, home base, you find it's just overrun with these uh, just sorry creatures. Yeah, and then there's also like you know there's the fishing hamlet from the DLC, and there's the other like college through that where it's like uh, you know the hunters went in and killed this like killed this creature uh, who's then like they're the unborn like fetus of that god. <laughs> like existed and was so angry and it was so startled that it tore apart all these people into a new nightmare world as it has kind of ascended or existed in half a plane. And like that act has also put a curse on all the hunters because in the, in the part of the process of, of being a hunter is that you're having all these skirmishes, which causes you a lot of injuries. So you're kind of consuming the blood in these vials and your player character is doing that as well. Uh, so frequently that it eventually brings on a level of madness that eventually gets you trapped in that nightmare with like this original sin that the hunters workshop perpetrated but also it means there's a whole nother subgroup of hunters that is just designed to murder hunters who have gone uh, blood mad Uh, and also the gameplay the other thing that is worth mentioning so at the end there's all these different things that can happen there's you find out that the hunters workshop and german who started that after it was shut down he like had a fetus thing or an umbilical cord he communed with another uh another god called the moon presence uh which looks like something out of fucking uh alien combined very xenomorphy black and ropey and mechanical almost so he's been pulling strings because, again, we never f- fully get some of these gods. We don't know what they want. Some of them have, like, limited motivation. But they, like, in some cases, like this one, they they are clearly working together. But German also feels trapped by the moon presence and whatever his uh, machinations are. And you have a chance to defeat him at the end and stuff like that. But part of the other thing, uh, or you end up, if you've consumed enough of these, like, umbilical cords to communicate with gods you'll become a great one yourself uh but part of the other thing one thing that the that you learn or can learn is that unlike most lovecraftian monsters which are at best uh neutral most of the great ones are kind of sympathetic towards humanity but they operate on such a different plane of existence that the desires of humanity don't make any sense to them and so 
Garmin watches over the hunter's dream, but yeah, he feels trapped there because he can never leave. The, the reading that I took was that Garmin made a deal with the moon presence saying, Hey, moon presence, these, uh, these beasts are becoming a huge problem. We need a way to defend ourselves. Help me, like, help me create the hunters. And the moon presence said, Okay. Um, he basically, well, made, the moon presence it, essentially created the immortality aspect yes, of the but the the immortality required someone to watch over the the hunter's dream, and that happened to be Garman. And so, in asking for assistance, Garman shackled himself. And also, there's it, keep in mind that when we say like you know, because there's like the god in the basement, uh, Breedus, and stuff like that. The, the the game also makes it very clear that like Garman and the moon presence reach some sort of accord, but they also can't like they literally can't understand each other. So how that level of accord was made, like, the the game is very clear about, like, the, everything that people are trying to figure out as a way to fully communicate. And, like, the umbilical cords grant some semblance of, like, communication of, like, uh, but I feel like it's more less communication and more, like, audience. Well, and and, this goes back to the eyes on the inside thing, where my reading was um, Willem and the uh, Bergenworth scholars prayed for eyes on the inside. And the great one who answered, which I believe was uh, Koss, yeah, thought like, okay, well, they, and they meant it as insight. They wanted um, like the third eye that Peter mentioned. And Koss hears the prayers and says, "All right, well, I don't know why you'd want eyes on the inside of your minds, but here you go." It's a game of it's a game of a uh, in, interdimensional uh, telephone almost, uh, yes. and, and the misunderstandings. Even though these are our best, our most brilliant minds, our most ambitious minds, cunning minds that are willing to make any sacrifice, even they can approach this. And if all of this sounds insane to you, I need we need to park here. If this sounds fucking insane to you. It that's is. because that's because it is, and and the point is that this is a whatever forty hour game. Yeah. Um. It, similar to Lovecraft, we get to engage with these monsters in a specific context, and we're almost engaging with a series of stories, not one big story, right? So it's almost like we're engaging with a yeah. Whole it's basically it's basically universe. a universe, yeah, a universe or a a world where these gods exist and all the different uh, ways that they have that their interactions with humanity has caused problems. Yeah. And so the point is that if this sounds... Most of which were brought on by the humans themselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, So this is... This sounds confusing. This sounds nuts. Like, part of the reason that it is it is uh, so... uh, seems so obtuse from an outsider's perspective has two reasons. One, it fits the Lovecraftian ethos for you to be kind of lost. And you will be kind of lost about what you're doing. You're not going to get a great sense of what you're doing for a large chunk of the game. Uh, and then the game does a huge bait and switch early on by making you think it's a fucking werewolf game for like six hours. And then all of a sudden, like... Uh, well, I don't know I don't know about your first playthrough. It was like 25 for me because I spent 15 hours in the first area. Yeah. I almost so, gave up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of us probably almost gave up in the first area. We will get to the difficulty in a moment. But it's, it is it is something that... Um, the confusion is kind of... It's a, it's a feature, not a bug. Uh, it's supposed to be this like intense, deep dive, nose nose down kind of thing. It's supposed to. It's asking you to become an obsessive, in the same way that a Lovecraftian character would be an obsessive. And yeah, that's well, fine. That's, a, fir- that's a really good point. But when you also- first meet Garman, he says like, "Don't ask questions. Just go kill beasts." Yes, but but you and can, you, you could can play do that. that. You could play that game. 
Like you, you can absolutely just play that game. And similar to, I think you're entirely, both of you are entirely right. You can play it that way and just be like, oh, I'm a thing that slays monsters. These are monsters. I'm a human. I'm a hunter. My job is to hunt. And you can play it as simply and as, as zero subtextually as you want. And if you uh, trust German to the end, he'll you, you get a, you get the happiest ending. Right? Yeah. Because he's like, great. You did you did good work, sir. Uh, you, you saved Yarnum. I'm going to send you back to your life. We'll have to and come back to this, but this is one of yeah. the few games where the best ending is the one that's easiest to get yeah Yeah. digging and digging and digging will get you an ending that you have it'll be certainly satisfying in one sense especially if you're into this lovecraft stuff but it will be um obtuse in a way that you will not you're not sure how to emotionally feel and it's very much what the fuck just happened yes and i think that uh the way that the game treats you throughout with with leaving these things as obtuse little moments within a broader story and you might understand individual characters within the story the game's not this game's not poorly written the game is fantastically amazingly written uh, like I but, like I truly I actually want to park there because there are two components of the gameplay that 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 tie into your point, which I think is really important. One is that there is a mechanic in this game called insight, which basically means that as you learn certain things, as you discover certain secrets, and that can include things that are going to happen automatically, um, like uh, seeing bosses or something like that. Uh, like these monstrosities, but also other things that can be totally optional. You actually see more of the game in what and the game world. So a really good example of this is that if you hit a certain point of insight, all of a sudden these weird like things that you saw, like is my screen glitching? Why did I start levitating in this cathedral ward church <laughs> area? You all of a sudden can see because now you have enough insight. You have enough eyes on the inside. Uh, at your, uh, that, that there are, um, these, these amygdala gods who are actually everywhere. They're, to, a great callback to From Beyond Peter, the Lovecraft story of like, oh, actually all these creatures are existing in our world, but now we can see them. Uh, and like, there's other parts of the game too that as you gain more knowledge, but it also makes things be able to kill you easier because while you're, with literally, your head exploding from knowledge and being able to see these like visual monstrosities that are created. And then the other part of the game that this game is very unique, even from a from game, which we'll talk about a little about how much of the game is optional. Like you don't even need to learn the story of old Yarnum and the fact that the church was a malevolent force who literally scorched a town once their cure and poison and like to cover evidence of their malfeasance. Like there is about more than half of the areas in this game that you uh, do not have to go through. And in many cases, finding how to enter them and to gain this knowledge is incredibly difficult. Like the, the uh, best area in the game is so well hidden. The Upper Cathedral Ward? I was going to go with Canehurst. But oh, yeah, Upper Cain- Cathedral. Canehurst is a really good example, but like, yeah, finding that key to get up that door, and that's where you find, that's where you discover the choir, that's where you discover yeah. a Breedus, that's where you discover the fact that they are turning these like orphans that they're stealing into these like fake gods that aren't working well. And it um, makes sense that the choir would make it really hard to to breach their, their fortress. Why it's rare from a video game perspective, just in general, it's one of the reasons why people like From Games. Bloodborne is even extreme among that. It's because it's, you know, most of the time when you want, when you make a video game, you want people to play as much of it as possible. There's a lot of work that goes into it. 
and games really, are hard. Games are hard, and and they take a lot of time. And quartering off major sections of a game to specifically in order to uh, like like it's important for them to do that thematically. It was crazy to discover all this. The other thing we should say about the way that just from games work in general is that you're going to have very few dialogue scenes. The as Peter said, it it takes effort. You have to become a, a, a obsessive. You have to become a scholar. In a lot of ways, because you basically discover the lore through minimal notes throughout the world, a couple cutscenes, and then item descriptions. As you find a piece of something, it tells you a story that you then need to connect to all the other pieces you find. And that's why there is such an online community. It's why these games breed these kind of obsessives like myself, Peter, and Andrew, where like we need to talk about this. And why I think Bloodborne does it so well, even among other From games... This and the original Dark Souls are the only two that I feel like that it really does reward you for becoming a complete lunatic in your obsessive. Like, the amount of hidden details, the amount of secrets you can find. I, I'm forgetting what it was, but there was something on, like, my sixth playthrough I stumbled in. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, the fact that you can jump off that elevator in the cathedral and find the the information on uh, a formless Odin and get that ruin. Like, I didn't know about that. Until, like, my sixth time through the game. Uh, and I was able to do that. And that adds a huge portion of the lore, like, about this thing that actually is a pretty big player that I was, like, pretty unfamiliar with. But it it, it is that kind of game where there is so much. And I... I, I yeah, without, I, without knowledge of Erden, you have no idea why, like, women are randomly getting pregnant with like, demon yeah. babies. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, but there's so much, and that's why, like, anyone who, when they first found the, like, the eye monster at the bottom of the nightmare, and then, like, I didn't find this out on my own, I, this is many, one of those many things I discovered online and went and tried, but, like, in the choir, there's a person who has died in a pose, and you can learn that pose as a way to communicate. Poses, in general, are just ways to communicate with other players that you can summon into your game. No point even getting into that. So in the bottom of this nightmare, you find this giant eye, right? If you do that little motion to it, it grants you a, uh, which is called communion, which is a way to communicate. You have to hold the pose for something like two minutes and it grants you one of those, uh, God words that you can etch into your brain. That is a pretty good one, but also gives you a bunch of like context and lore. So, like, I have no idea how someone figured that out. No, because yeah, insane. because you have to you have to Did hold that position for while they were at least a minute, maybe. <laughs> my my yeah. best guess is that it was a data data miner, probably, or it was um, in the guidebook, which yeah, obviously may have been. So 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 that 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 shit is not there just because like the the creators wanted to be cute, right? That stuff is there and it's hidden because they're they like you said they're trying to reward obsession a but b. It's it's not just trying to reward obsession in you. It's trying to reward obsession in the community. Bloodborne is also a multiplayer game that uh similar to previous from software games has mixed uh mixed uh, fun involved with it. Um I I personally like bringing people into my world and play it cooperatively and try to take down bosses together. I think that's fun, but there's a mechanic in all of the from software games essentially except for Sekiro recently that people can invade your worlds and it's and it's it's 
very annoying and very stupid and it doesn't work that well but um the uh the the the, uh, the, the only invasion story i have that i enjoyed was when the same guy invaded me and a friend twice in a span of 10 minutes and we just destroyed him both times that, yeah see like stuff like that can be fun and bloodborne uh, works to make that stuff fun because you have to essentially uh, very often for someone to invade you you have to have a buddy with you so that person better really really want want to invade um yeah. but anyways without getting tra- trapped in the details the community is what I'm, I'm pointing to here uh people in the community want to help each other both on a gameplay level they want to help each other get past hard bosses and so they'll just like post up near a really hard boss and then if uh you do a certain gameplay mechanic you can bring people into your world and say like hey let's beat this boss together and that's a totally legitimate way to play it's not cheating it's completely within the game and then the other half some would say otherwise, but those people are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fuck those people. Um, but I, but on a more important level for our discussion here, uh, there's a Bloodborne community that helps us kind of decode this stuff and work with this stuff. We referenced Bonfireside Chat, which is a podcast where every episode, which is like an hour to two hours long, is about one level of the game. And that sort of obsession about the small details and sharing theories and getting involved is in its own way creating like a meta Bergenworth, a meta Arkham, where we're trying to figure out the mysteries of this strange, obtuse universe. And that would not happen if From didn't make their games kind of obtuse and kind of dense. Well, and that's why I honestly believe that, and why we wanted to do this, even though it's outside of our, we, we love to watch like movie house thing, is because I don't think, not only does is this game, like, so good, like, at everything it does, I just don't think there's a better possible adaptation of Lovecraft, because the ability to add the metatextual Lovecraftian mystery-solving and obsession and knowledge that can be gained, and you know what? Sometimes too much knowledge uh, can be a bad thing the more you get obsessed with Bloodborne. I don't know how many times I've listened to those podcast episodes or watched those fucking lore videos or spent nights trying to find a new good lore video, uh, especially when I first, you know, the first couple years of playing it. I don't know how many times I went through and played this game. Like, it became, for a good stretch for me, kind of an all-consuming um, obsession. Thankfully, not one that had any, like, impact outside of my free time. You just uh, have one kid, or two but... extra eyes. Yeah. The the other good, like, the other thing about that makes just a perfect Lovecraft uh, adaptation. No racism. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Even the, the fish people in the fishing hamlet are sympathetic. Like they, they attack you because the hunters destroyed them. Like they yeah. destroyed their culture in, in pursuit of knowledge. And so, yeah, of course they're going to be upset with hunters. Do we want to talk about that right now? How the game kind of undoes a lot of, uh lovecraftian stories in a way that makes them um more interesting and less morally problematic um because there's this entire section called the 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 fishing hamlet you kind of figure out why the why the hunters themselves like kind of disbanded and why German probably reached out to the moon presence and like created the dream and why the another more context as to why the church maybe stopped using them and went to their own church hunters. Which I mean, essentially the church hunters are like the Knights Templar. Like they're yeah, like they're the militant branch of the church. They stopped being uh sorry, just one they stopped so the original hunters were secretive, right? They were going and literally trying to like clear evidence of 
the what was happening yeah. to people right like people so, like simon yeah who, so like, they were they like disguised themselves be... as beggars yeah exactly and then then the between the old yarnum stuff and then the stuff that happened in the fishing hamlet the church was like for you know this is not working and the church decided fuck it everyone knows what we're doing like it's kind of like that kind of like, oh, you discovered our secret fascism. Okay, now we're just going to become super open about it. Yeah, we're going to send yeah. people in to kill people that are transforming. And fuck you guys, we're closing all the doors. So so the Fishing Hamlet is sort of an adaptation of Shadow of Innsmouth. And like I said, the, the whole game is, is kind of a collection of short stories. And like Aaron said, it's a universe in and of itself. And Andrew, I want you to hold on to the Knights Templar thing because this game also has some... Uh, somewhere uh some stuff to do with uh christianity um yeah i can't wait to talk about with, that it wrangles with it in a way that uh i don't think lovecraft really did like you could you could probably assume lovecraft was an atheist from his works i don't know if that's true but anyways so the fishing hamlet there was a fishing hamlet they made a deal with a with a god the deal seemed to be going pretty well Though there was a transformative effect on the people, they started to take on a fishy appearance. They started to, and they started to form their own culture. Now let's jump to but Shadow the, over Innsmouth. But the people, the people very much didn't care. Yeah, they're like, this they is like, cool. Which, which is different than a lot of the, in other areas, the beast, it's a plague that like surprises people because they think they're getting like a, a healing blood that actually is from a god like they just think they're getting medicine right so yeah. this is the only example in all these like discrete examples of the game where a populace experiences transformation by their own free will that's and very it true. Is cool with it whereas yeah, yeah the, the people in yarnum reek out because they didn't know that they were like they were unknowingly entering into a pact with these gods that would transform them yeah. Whereas the fishing village, uh, the fishing hamlet citizens did. The unknowingness part is really true. And Andrew, you referenced the celestial emissaries where they would turn uh, uh, the uh, the choir, which was part of the healing church, would turn orphans into these like diplomats, essentially, these emissaries. Uh, they're called celestial emissaries. I think it's a pretty self, self-explanatory self name uh, to try and better communicate with the gods. And that was uh, not consensual. Um, because no, A, their children, and B, who would want to be turned into these weird gummy freaks? Um, yeah, like their heads are so huge. Like yeah. The animation on these things is so good because when they run, their heads just wobble back and forth. Yeah, and, and, and we'll also get to Rom the Vacuous Spider, which was an attempt to to uh, communicate with the gods as well, and it turned a member of uh, the college into a uh, big stupid obtuse god that couldn't do anything could never ascend and can never really access so she got to become a god but she didn't yeah it's basically a, god. a dummy she, god yeah, yeah rom got to become a god but she got to become like a dummy god who who was dummy thick with spiders which and, is also which is also a great we can get into this too like what does it even mean in lovecraftian uh, language or in the universe of this game to be a god yes. yeah like, because, what did she gain from it yeah Yes. So, okay, so that's all setting up kind of the, the Shadow of Innsmouth thing. So the, the there's a fishing hamlet that in Bloodborne that, um, yes, they, they were happy to have this sort of consensual communion with a god. They got to become they got to become these sort of fish things that, that could have a, a nice, they could work as much as they wanted to, and they could be more at peace with the sea, more at peace with their god and their sense of the universe and yada yada. And then the, these hunters came in and just wiped them off the planet. And 
it made a horror show of them. Shadow over Innsmouth. You can is, find an item that is the skull of one of the fish fishmen, and it says that the inner, the inside of the skull has scrape marks where the hunters were looking for eyes. Yeah, yeah, because so they, they, they were trying in, to figure out how this, like, they, they, the hunters didn't understand because everything they had done is like violent, right? They're kidnapping yes. a god, they're ex- doing these experiments, so they assumed. Um, Something, yeah, something so, colonialism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very much so. And uh, that the god they kill is Cosm, who is, or, or Cos. Uh, or some say Cosm. Yeah. And, uh, and he was, and that god was pregnant and both died throughout it. But the violence inflicted by the hunters is what took all of this out of the real world into a dream state. Anyways. Yeah. Peter, so, so the that. shadow over Innsmouth, uh, guy walks into a town, finds out the town made a deal with this demonic devil thing and they uh all became fish people as they uh miscegenated with them uh i bet you can guess what lovecraft meant by uh them mixing blood with uh fish people um it was he sees as an evil thing and a degradation of new england culture that he holds so so close to him and uh the people seem these like these unhappy monsters in the thrall of a beast and they're violent and anxious and awful. And uh, at the end of the story, the military comes in, blows up a lot of these things, stomps them. It's actually, I think one of the only times where the military comes in or like a big outstanding force comes in and actually like beats back a Lovecraftian uh, monster. One of the very few times where it actually works. Um, and you can see the, the, the fact that Miyazaki, uh, Hidetake Miyazaki is the director and sort of the brainchild of a lot of these From Software games. And you can see him sort of wrangling the shadow over In's mouth, especially as a Japanese man who uh, Lovecraft would have probably seen as dirtying the American blood, the pure Anglo-American blood, if he had had uh, children with, uh, you know, a white person. Uh, and Hidetaki uh, Miyazaki basically Hidetaka Miyazaki essentially was like, I'm going to take this story, I'm going to strip the racism out of it, and I'm going to take it to a new level that Lovecraft never approached, which is, what if people made an accord with a god, a communion with a god, and it kind of turned out okay? Like it's a little scary from an outsider's perspective, but it kind of turned out okay. <laughs> And, I, and, and what's interesting is that the broader... So we're talking about specifically the fishing hamlet, in a, which is one just section of the game. In a broader sense, we can talk about uh, the fact that the game takes place in this Victorian England sort of world, a world that probably Lovecraft would love, like this idea of this like science-first, progressive town that is, is pushing the boundaries of what a, a, a Western city could be. And, um, but their culture gets subverted and destroyed and mangled by um, a, a outside influences is one way you could read it. Uh, the fact that they uh, they all of a sudden have to wrangle and contend with this this outside God. But that's not really true. This is this is uh, th- what destroyed the culture of Yarnum and made it into this vicious dog eat dog world. Literally, if we're talking about beasts, um, is that. Uh, they saw something as capitalists, as ruthless imperialists that they could take advantage of. They jumped on it and it poisoned their minds. It made them greedy. It made them greedy for knowledge, for money, for power, 
and and it destroyed them from the inside out. And it's and in that way, Miyazaki is also modernizing the ideas of Lovecraft because he's not saying, "Oh, this poor Victorian town," which he does all the time. He's like, "This poor Victorian yeah. town, it just got destroyed by this alien force of these these strange monsters coming in." Instead, the, the gods are played as sort of a passive role at first. They're played as sort of this thing that was pursued by by these researchers again and again and again and then abused and exploited by them until finally the gods were like fine you want this knowledge you want this power here and it backfired tremendously the dlc is so important because the fishing hamlet does show that peaceful coexistence was possible right with with like a level of honesty where where uh it wasn't with the kind of people trying to grab power and i also want to just very quickly point out and we'll get to this in more detail but it's not just that these people are trying to gain power and they've like it's that capitalist like we need to gain the knowledge for ourselves and then even the different sects of the church start like stop communicating with each other when they start like the the mensis school finds the umbilical cord and starts communicating with uh, Murgo and like then they they stop communicating with everyone so much that the choir is sending investigators there to try to figure out wait what the fuck have they done because once they gain that access you know they didn't want to share it with anyone else either but it's that idea of like um capitalism cloaked in uh, religiosity yeah, religiosity spirituality and um and and just doing good like the church is seen as this like f- originally a force of good with all the answers and healing to support the Yarnamites. instead they're they're conducting ex- experiments on a populace so that idea of like unfettered uh, fascistic capitalism with the guise of like with 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 its covering itself in the in the guise of, of religion. Uh, I don't know, Peter. It feels like if people listen to the show, they may think that that's a theme that might speak to the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like, whereas the fishing village, everything is peaceful and symbiotic. Uh, Lawrence, Wilhelm, uh, Mikolash, all of them wanted gains without giving anything up, and yeah. so. Like Lawrence, when he makes the when he goes on to found the healing church, the for like for years, the church is the most powerful institution in Yarnum. Like they have this entire section of the city that they control, and instead of you know trying to be benevolent uh, and and open and honest with everyone about what's going on, they say like, "Hey, everyone, we have this cure that can cure anything. Make us." Like the leaders of this town. And they also, um, to get back to them, once they get discovered that they've been sending hunters out to kill people that are failing at their, based on their experiments, I think it also, like, uh, really speaks to this idea that, like, there's a certain level of power and corruptness that is, like, incapable of shaming even when their deeds come out. So, like, that, that part really speaks to me, this idea of okay, we've been sending these hunters out to kill people based on our secret dealings. And, like, discovery of those secret dealings and the destruction of a town doesn't cause the populace to rise out. It doesn't cause for their removal of power. It doesn't... They don't, like, send out a memo, like, we're going to change our corporate policy to stop destroying towns on accident. Instead, they're like, yep, you caught us. Uh, Now we're just going to do all that stuff out of the open. What the fuck are you going to do? Well, part of the problem is that there's so much chaos that's been created by what they've been doing that the populace just needs to fight back against the like the beast scourge that's been happening. And so most of the people you run into are just out of their minds with terror and fighting anyone new that, that happens to cross their path. 
And the church has convinced the populace of Yarnum that they're like they're with us, right? Like yeah. in the same way that like fucking capitalism and and uh, and corrupt religions are like no, no, no. Like you're one of us, basically. Like you're like a hunter. You're one of the big. Like yeah, if you see anyone who looks beastly, could you kill him for us? Because you're you're one of us. Like you have the same. Uh, you're you're part of our organization when of course which is like the difference between like uh workers and capitalism and like the shareholders who are actually pocketing all the riches and power and then and like that idea gets so ingrained in the villagers that even as they're sprouting fur and their like yeah. limbs get really long and and beast like they they're still shouting about how they need to stop the plague yeah until they can Literally, stop speaking the uh, literally a group the opening scene essentially for you and the opening set piece in the game is that you as a hunter walk into the scene of these like partially transformed werewolves uh that have burned a fully transformed werewolf at the stake yeah. like and are are complaining about the the level of 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 beastliness like and that's why like first playing the game it was so confusing to me like it really was like from a story standpoint i was like why are these people getting mad at me as a hunter when they seem to not like beasts? And also, why are they complaining about beasts when they are beast people? <laughs> like, it was it was a little hard to get what was going on. Like, in some ways, it just seemed like... It's the Spider-Man pointing at, at himself, the game. Yeah, it is. And we should also talk about really briefly, if we're going to talk about um, the sociopolitical stuff that goes into the game, we should talk about the fact that Bloodborne... The three Dark Souls games, Demon Souls, all allow you to play as a man, a woman, um, and uh, lets you change your skin color to whatever you want. Lets you play an older or a young person. Um, it, they haven't quite transcended to the point where it's like non non binary, but like for years they've been wor- operating on the standard where like your character is an outsider to this world. It doesn't matter if they're black. It doesn't matter if they're white. They're just an outsider to the to this particular fantasy universe, and they will be treated as an outsider no matter what if they're black or white. Like, and it lets people, I think it lets people of color or people that are or are, are just want to have a different gameplay experience, um, sort of play around in this universe in a way that you might not see these characters usually usually uh, depicted. Right, like I can play an elderly a tall elderly black woman in these games, which I usually do, um, or a tall elderly woman in general. And uh, that's something you're not used to seeing in games like this. You're used to seeing like gruff, muscular white dudes with beards. Instead, like he's kind of saying like, be who you are, come into our world as an outsider, literally and textually. And see how it goes down, and you're not going to be treated any differently for your race or anything, which is, like, specifically uh, something that that sticks it to Lovecraft, intended or not, because Lovecraft was someone that only saw people as your personality is your race, then your class, and then somewhere further down, your actual experiences and who you are and who you've decided to be and all that stuff. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of fun to have a game where it's just like, we don't really care what you look like. Just just start the game. Just go hunt some beasts. Yeah. That's what hunters do. <laughs> Here's something I want to make sure, because I feel like we could talk about all this literally for three or four more hours. And I, I don't even, that's not even a, a hypothetical 
because Peter himself exchanged exchanged um, tens of thousands of messages about probably this more game. than the game script. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So I I don't want to gloss over the fact that this is also one of the scariest games I've ever played for two reasons. One, so I didn't be- rebeat this game uh, before recording this podcast, but I played about five hours of it, and I've. I've gone through it all the way through, I think, five times and in, in pieces many more times than that. Um, I, I know this game like the back of my hand at this point. So even replaying it, it was funny. Like, okay, yep, I know that person. I'm going to go. Like, it, it's it's almost got to the point of it's less a video game and more of a process for me. Uh, but the game, especially, like, I had the volume up, I had lights out. I still jumped a few times. The sound design on this game is amazing. The, the way there's always, like coughing in the background because you are in a town that has locked themselves away from this like beast scourge and everything else going on so if you're if you're going mad you're letting out blood curdling terrible screams there's like this this creature in old yarnum who literally like you just want the screams to stop meanwhile there's all this other background noise and the the creatures are terrifying things jump up with these giant inhuman yelps and stuff like that it's a very scary game but also much like the best Lovecraft stories, knowledge uh, breeds fear as well. Because every time I play this game, there are bosses, stretches, where I dread. Because even if I end up beating them on the first time, from software games are very difficult. Uh, and they're not difficult for the sake of being difficult. We can talk a little more about the difficulty. Well, maybe Dark Souls 3. Yeah, fun yeah. game. Uh, but anyways... Yeah, but um, <laughs> But this, this is not the Andrew yells about Dark Souls three hours. Yeah, so it's, it's a whole different podcast. But because of that, even knowledge actually, like uh, I can name specific stretches where I'm like, like a shortcut that's like, man, I do not want to die here because I, I, there's like thirty things in my way to get there, and uh, and I just have to be careful. So there, there is a true like. Uh, you know, from the first time you play, everything seems like a mountain. You don't know what's going on in every victory. Um, I remember my wife once saw me beat a boss in one of these games. I don't, I forget if it's Bloodborne. And like, I was shaking when I finally beat it. And she was like, did you just have a orgasm? <laughs> and like, she was like, what, what is, what did I just witness? And funnily enough, Peter, I think, texted me when he first beat the first boss of this game and you said, now that I know what a no ejaculation orgasm feels like. And I feel like, Andrew, you have a similar story to that. I I have, I guess, two. One from this and one from Dark Souls 3, which I just mentioned. But So Dark Souls 3, I had something similar to the story with your wife, where I was stuck on a boss for a long time. And when I finally beat them, I just let out a big sigh. And my then-girlfriend said, I don't like it that a video game can make you make that noise. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, there's a boss in the DLC for Bloodborne that I know it's Peter's favorite boss, and I think it's Aaron's as well. It's definitely mine. Lady Maria. Oh, yes, Lady Maria. And it's it's such an exhilarating It's actually my fight. second favorite boss in the game, but... Um. You're dead to me. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's an exhilarating fight. It's really yeah. tough, but it feels so fair in ways that certain other fights don't. And when I finally beat her, my it felt like my heart was about to stop. I've had that feeling where it does, and it, as a result, like you are making these, you don't realize how you're holding your breath, you don't realize how you're breathing, because it just feels so intense and like scary and everything else, and also the idea of failure breeds fear. But 
all those moments are so etched into my mind that even replaying stuff that turns out to not be that hard. I like, like when I, the shadows of Yarnum is my biggest wall boss in this game. And not even from a, uh, it's definitely not the, the boss that I had the most, uh, the most times I've died to, or it was the hardest for me the first or even second time around, but it's such a long run up. And, Unlike like something like German or some of the other bosses that were very hard for me the first time around, I have a level of confidence in how to beat them. And for the Shadows of Yarnum, I always feel like I'm just flaying around and hoping I beat them. And so, like, so oh, sorry, anytime I have a story about yeah, the Shadow of Yarnum, I, I know you have a very you have a different fear of that part. But yeah. every time I play this game, by the time I get to the Forbidden Woods, which is the level that eventually leads to the Shadows of Yarnum, I spend that whole level going, "Fuck, they're coming, they're coming." I'm going to have to fight him. And yeah, sometimes I first tried him and it's like, oh, good, that's over. Uh, but then I have something else to be scared of. So the the game is scary on so many different levels because it is, has truly, it's a very scary game. It has, I think it's still the most gorgeous from a set design and sound design and aesthetically that the, that the video games has ever produced. Um but then on top of that, like, again, like a very Lovecraftian game, knowledge does not remove fear. It brings on a whole new one that I spend the entire game thinking about. So my issue with the Shadow of Yarnum is that the, the Forbidden Forest is full of snake monsters and snakes terrify me. So I always try to get through that area as quickly as possible. And the Shadow of Yarnum in their final phase can summon a giant snake to attack you. And so the first time I beat them, I, I knew that was coming because I read a guide because uh, I knew I had to make sure that I knew any snake related uh, issues with the game before I played it. And when I saw the summoning ritual, what I would do was I would go in, get a couple hits on, on the boss, and then turn my eyes away from the screen and just dodge backwards until I, until the uh, hissing sound went away. And then look back at the screen. If I had to heal, I healed up and then went back to fighting. And then on my most recent uh, playthrough, when I got to the Shadow of Yarnum, I'm like, I, I'm going to beat these guys in one because I do not want to fight them a second time. And I, and I did it. So <laughs> your, I, you, like, your I think you snakes is so pronounced that it actually made you a better player. Yeah, I'm just like I'm not screwing around with these guys. One and done, because the uh, the creature design is very good, and by very good I mean terrifying. Yeah, the, yeah. there's just something about this game that like even when it's empowering, it's disempowering because like you'll kill these things, but. The next you can kill all these things really easily, but the next time you turn a corner and you see one of them, you'll still be like, oh, fuck, just because like it's it's stressful to deal with these these monstrosities. I think it's even stressful to deal with villagers, and even though the villagers often go down in one to three hits. Right. It's still it's still stressful because they make insane sound design. They have such exaggerated, terrifying movements uh, and also, this this is true of all the Dark Souls games, and this is true of Demon Souls. It's true of Bloodborne. Any individual character can kill you. This isn't something where it's like, ugh, fuck, they got me down to ninety. I was on my recent playthrough. I got killed by like a standard villager who I was just backstabbing for for farming, uh, you know, materials for farming blood vials and bullets out of him. Uh, I was just farming him on my way to a boss run. 
uh, every time. And then he turned around and set me on fire and then slashed the shit out of me and he killed me. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't die to these like these scrubs walking around yeah. the street in their petticoats. That's not that's not who I die to. But but you do but you do because and that's what that's what helps make the world so terrifying is that any individual character can be can be your end. The sound design is insane, and the and the and the monster design makes it so the the, the exaggerated movement of the monsters it, it performs a purpose, right? These long limb things help you read their monsters' attacks. But it also makes them feel like they could take up the whole map. It kind of harkens back to like the original Mario Brothers, where even a Goomba could kill you if you weren't careful. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it is it it's it is an area where we're speaking of Lovecraft adaptations, like that video games do have a upper hand on movies because movies from a both a budget and a uh, realistic standpoint you know, designing these kind of Lovecraftian giant elder gods is difficult. Like it takes a lot of money to do it right, which is why most movies haven't. Uh, And you, but you still kind of want to see them like these, like they're described so well. Like one of the great things is like, man, I'd love to see that in a movie. I don't even know how it would fit together in my head because Lovecraft was either, you know, very, very undescriptive in his descriptions or in like a, it's half these eight animals like and you're like how the fuck does that fit together and that's that's great like it's very it gives you this idea of i can't even know what this looks like so adapting lovecraft even besides that has always been difficult and this this game does a really good job with its eldritch gods and horrors of kind of not fitting to a perfect description of of what Lovecraft described, because it's not a true adaptation of a Lovecraft story or their gods, but the idea of these gods, the idea of these kind of like creatures that you can place parts of in different things, but kind of become this this other thing aesthetically. Like this this game kills it. Like Abridus, uh, the Moon Presence, all these other things are just or the one reborn is a really great example which is the god like attempted to be created by the school of mensis or is like this is exactly the type of undescribable horror that lovecraft l- wanted to give you the sense of in its eldritch gods the one reborn looks like all the sacrifices that they made got like scrunched together into a giant gross undead monster with just bodies everywhere yeah and because the whole game is you know computer graphics and cgi or whatever else like it's not looking fake compared to real things uh it just is part of the aesthetic you know i don't know that much about video game design costs and something but it's not like it's not like each creature i'm assuming is like well that's 50 million if we want people to to yeah. like it so that line especially from a like big monster effect production whether it's in movies or video games the line between goofy and scary is very difficult to thread right and i think all of the eldritch horrors in this game are are like scary and if i was to try to describe a Bredis or the moon presence to someone to draw i don't think i could even though in my head i can tell you what it kind of looks like yeah, and, and, and speaking of monster design, uh, Abrietas is described, I mean, if you want to put it into text, Abrietas is described in H.P. Lovecraft's description of Cthulhu. Abrietas is essentially nine-tenths of the way what Cthulhu would be. The scale is wrong, but uh, Cthulhu has this sort of tentacle body, this strange sort of toothy face, and particularly these strange 
uh, seemingly unfunctional wings. And the way his surface is described is all uh, his, he or she's surface is not, whatever fucking they they their surface. It's you're talking about like uh, these gods, right? Like these like insane gods. I don't I don't know. Is is Cthulhu gendered as a man? Seems so so beyond the bounds of what uh what uh, these gods would be concerned with. But um, hey, hey, that's actually a really good transition. I think we should go back and talk about the idea of what gods are. Yeah, we should. Lovecraft but yeah, so basically, Eberatus. Is, is described by H.P. Lovecraft himself because essentially Eberatus was their chance to be like, hey, you want to fight Cthulhu? <laughs> uh, yeah, the Amygdalas are really good too. The Amygdalas are insane because also I'm like, I'm thinking about them now and I'm like, well, they kind of got like a spidery body and I'm like, well, but it's like fleshy on the outside like a human, but a human that's been kind of burned and then healed yeah. over. Well, and and the, just, the like, ends of their legs kind of look like hands. Yeah, the more you think about it, the grosser it gets. And the thing is, this isn't just something that, like, they threw together for a quick little uh, single animation within, uh, you know, an effect shot in a movie. This is something that has to move tactically around a 3D fighting rink. And uh, you have to be able to interact with each of its limbs. Like, the level of craftsmanship here is insane on a level where it's like, these gods... These gods can't just exist as a sort of vague idea. These gods have to have, like, some sort of, like, wireframe and bones for the, the animators to fucking animate. Yeah, and uh, the characters themselves, because you can, I mean, you have to be able to move around it. Like, I can see every inch of the one reborn because I can move all the way, you know? Like, so there's not, like, a part where you can go, well, this just needs to work here, uh, and then the rest of it's fine. Like, the the level of detail is insane. So... That's a good time to really talk about, like, so one thing uh, that Lovecraft does that Peter and I have said we really like uh, on our intro episode is this idea of, like, gods being kind of unknowable and, like, the concept of gods not being this, like, om- omnipotent, all-powerful deity but, deity, but truly just, like, in some ways just an just a phase of an entity's evolution that puts their power and an understanding of the universe in kind of a way that makes that's unknowable to humanity so like gods don't necessarily need to be smart they don't need to be able to grant wishes or create um as a matter of fact like we find out the gods in the bloodborne universe have uh they have 99 problems and not being able to conceive a child is one like they they have their own issues would um, this definition kind of fit with the, I believe it's Arthur C. Clarke, who, the statement about how um, sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic to those who don't have the, the yeah. Um, yeah, don't have the frame of reference to understand it. The interesting thing about the lore here is that these, these creatures, these gods in Bloodborne were at one point earthbound, and at some point they were able to ascend into a new plane of existence or create additional planes of existence but not all of them because abridas is the left behind god who wasn't able to do that or who knows maybe there was some inter-god conflict that was like no you don't have access to this fuck you abridas the the actual yes the will of these gods is often um indecipherable but you can see the actions of them in sort of different points in time and interacting with different people and you can't really tell if they were mad at them and that's why they treated them this way or they were like no 
This is what this is what you should be. You should be this big bug-eyed monster. <laughs> this is what your your reward is. I'm a big bug-eyed monster. Are you saying I'm ugly? You saying I'm ugly? Uh. And so this gets into one of my favorite parts of the game, where it's kind of a twist on Catholicism, because in Catholicism, one of the central things that you do is imbibe the blood of your god, and. That is what happens in this game, too, uh, except it literally is blood instead of wine. And they're hoping that like by imbibing this blood, it'll bring them closer to their gods, that it will heal them not only of their sickness, but eventually of their humanity, uh, which they believe is holding them back. And it does kind of bring them closer to enlightenment, except... Um, you know, Catholics see them as being made in their God's image. And we know for a fact that humans and bloodborne are not made in the image of those they view as gods. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. That idea of like, okay, well, if you've drinking, if you've drank this enough, you're going to start turning into like a beast, which is what we are. And I also really like that, like, the reason why you think it's a werewolf game is that the people in Yarnum are turning into wolf-like creatures. Or like the fishing hamlet are turning into different creatures than the people of the forest and the people at Bergenworth. And like, um, there is almost this either idea, I, I can't quite tell which one it is, whether it's an idea of location breeds a different form of transformation. I like the idea more that like, depending on who you're communing with, the gods themselves, you're becoming more in their image. And that image varies because the gods do not all uh, you know, they're not like one homogenous race. Yeah, and, and and I love the idea that the the this church, this healing church, will very often. Um, Andrew referenced the Knights Templar earlier. Very often engage with these ideas or uh, propagate certain ideas to a, further entrench their power. Because this is an inherently bureaucratic organization with tons of branches, and it's got a lot of fucking overhead, and you got to keep the lights on. So um, there's they don't want to fall into irrelevance. They don't want people to stop showing up to church. So there's there's ideas of the church purposefully letting certain plagues go on so they can swoop in and save them with blood ministration, or the church. Uh, the, the church uh, sort of uh, the ends justify the means approach, taking a Machiavellian approach to to their world around them. The evil that they put out is very often done by people who think, well, mankind will be better because of this. But to you, all you see is monstrosity. You see the after. You don't need moral relativism. You see the after effects, which is these horrific monsters that are taking all these different forms. And it was just because this goddamn church just couldn't deal with the fact that their, their particular brand wasn't working and they could, they could not become keepers of the universe the way they wanted to be. There is a sense when you're playing this game that you are a cog in a wheel and as it goes on and you are dealing with things that are far larger than you and you may never understand it. But as the game approaches its third act, you start to become a mover and a shaker that's outside of these organizations and outside of who uh, who you've you've you know the the town might recognize as the real movers and the shakers. You're an outsider, so you get to break the wheel, so to speak. To get back to something that we were saying earlier, uh, you can play this game in a way where you just kind of accept everything. 
And so even though I generally say that this is the best ending, the one that's easiest to get is you kind of remaining ignorant and letting things play out the way that the, that the movers and the shakers want them to. And so after the, the way that you end the hunt is by destroying the, I forget what the exact term is in, in the game, but it's something like the source of the hunt or something. And so it's it's the fact it's the you destroy Murgo, which has created things have gotten worse because of what Mentis has done. Right. And so when you do that, Garman says to you, like, okay, good, you've done what we needed you to do. Now I will set you free and uh submit your life to me and you will be free. And he ritualistically kills you, but what that does is it severs you from the dream. And so it allows you to continue on with your life. You're no longer immortal, but you're no longer stuck in the night of the hunt. And I mean, to me, it's that's generally the best ending because you are now free from this hell that you've been stuck in all night. But in doing so, you're kind of just letting uh, Garmin and the moon presence and the, and the church just go on existing. Now, most players probably say, no, I'm not going to submit my life to you. I've seen too much. Um, you're up to no good, and I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to bury my head in the sand. And that, in my opinion, results in the worst ending because yeah. now you're chained. Now you take Garmin's place, and you're chained to the hunter's dream. And Garmin is in so much pain in this environment, and yet he is trying to protect you by letting you go. And he will fight to protect you. He's like, he's like, you did your job. Get the fuck out of here. Like, let's yeah. let's, let's lop your head off. Uh, and it, he, he's not just going to say like, all right, you take the yeah uh, uh, hot potato. You take the you take the bag. Um, he, uh, he cares, he, he, he weirdly enough cares about you or like, is it, even though he's done horrible, horrible, horrible things, he's willing to like, fuck, well, I guess I'll just sit in this hell of, of, uh, you know, Murgo's creation. Yeah. Worth noting that everyone has done horrible things. There is not a good character you meet in this game with the exception of, uh, the, the guy at the church who's like, yeah, just, we'll try to keep everyone safe. Or the, like, like the, li- literally like a little girl. That's <laughs> like those two people, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, so one thing about like the people in the game, you know, not being good. One area where this has a little bit of a one up on real life, like a lot of fiction does, is that they're like everyone from Lawrence to uh, to German to all these people that have done uh, these terrible, terrible things. They are not immune from the effects. So even though they have all this power that they've consolidated and are literally using the town to further their power and to gain knowledge with with resulting death or anyone else, you eventually re-meet most of the main of the the bigger movers and shakers in this game, and the vast majority of them have been succumbed in like terrifying ways to the beast plague. So Lawrence, when you find out his story, you kind of get it picking up a skull that is very much a wolf skull. Amelia, who has taken over for, for Lawrence as like the new pope, you meet her as she transforms into this uh, monstrous, monstrous uh, beast. The the first person that you um, you fight, probably the first boss fight you come across, uh, the cleric beast is kind of supposed to potentially be Ludwig. I don't know if how much that carries water, but either way, you also meet Ludwig in the the Hunter's Nightmare because he was a hunter where his consciousness and he is like a grotesque two-headed half-horse 
human being. Like there is a le- there is a level of comeuppance for the idea that like this level of power, this level of like knowledge, they are they are not safe from its damages. The real world comparison, like there is some truth to that. Like if we if we go back to kind of its references to capitalism, like and the amount of damage they are doing to the world in like a global warming perspective, like they may be in a better position now than say someone uh, who doesn't have that much money and is on a part of the world that will get covered in an ocean. But like they are also at some point, whether it's them or their children or their grandchildren will not be immune from like devastating climate change caused by them not wanting to make extra profit. Like, you know, at some point when you're dealing with powers this big, like no one is left untouched or undamaged. Well, in that first boss that you find drops an item that says that the members of the church become the most horrific beasts, likely because they're the ones using the most blood. And it is like a a weird divine uh, irony. And and also, like, I think about it the way that I always thought about it, especially with the cleric beast and with uh, Vicar Amelia, there's there's circles of influence and there's circles of knowledge, right? So within these circles of knowledge, at least, uh, I like to think that, like, the the inner upper echelons know more and more and are more you know they're exposed to this stuff for the treatments for the longer time yes for sure but they also are getting more and more exposed to the the truths of the universe even though they'll never have a full grasp of it just it's impossible they're getting closer and closer to the truths of the universe and uh because of that yeah they become the most horrific things but like the people that are on the periphery of those circles will just become scrubs it kind of makes sense in a in a gameplay perspective because it's like yeah you want it's so annoying when you're playing these games and you're like oh the fat mob boss who probably hasn't shot anybody in 20 years can take three bullets to the head but yeah (laughs) um but it it, but in this sense it kind of makes sense because like the upper echelons the people with the most knowledge and have had the longest exposure to blood ministrations or treatments or any any of this stuff like it's a really good point you know, that kind of gets to, I think, a little bit as we kind of move towards some final thoughts and ending. Like, here's where this game gets a little tough, because if you've listened to us talk about this and you are not familiar with it, maybe you've never played this game or been concerned about the difficulty level of From games and everything else, uh, or just maybe you don't play video games where you're like, oh, this is interesting. I don't think this game is hard to recommend. But like we we said pretty candidly early, like in order to get to this level of understanding the story and all the different things and all the different ways these little things mean acts and stuff like that, it is a it is a time commitment well beyond uh, recommending a movie or a book or something for someone to read. Like if you it took me, I think, like 50 hours to beat this the first time. Uh, I'd never played a From game, and this this game is a whole different conversation that we don't need to get into here, but, like, totally made me rethink how I played video games in general. That idea of every enemy can kill you, the idea that you can't just, like, power your way through and, and depend on healing items, and I'll just, like, I'll, I'll just invest in health, and then I'll just constantly just tank my way through everything. I don't need to use dodges and parries. Uh, um, and that was a lot of it. So it, it, the first area of this game, when I first played it, I think it's longer than most people, but it took me like 15 hours. And the, the, the second boss fight uh, against a hunter who's gone mad took me like 70 plus tries. I tried it five or six times a day for like two to three weeks. 
uh, and just could not. The the way that you level up, the way that you use the machinations in this game, especially if you've never played a from, from soft uh, game, are incredibly op- obtuse. Um, you almost need a guide of a person, which is why uh, when I first played it, I relied heavily on the internet. Peter... Uh, I think relied, I don't think it's, it's uh, speaking out of school to say that Peter uh, relied heavily on me and the internet Absolutely. and then, and yeah. then Andrew, the, the same with, with, I think both of us to some, to some level where you want to be surprised, but also the game is so obtuse in so <laughs> many capacities that like, like you need to tell me what to do here. I'm never going to figure out what to, how to, how to do this. And then you could, like we said, you could spend 30 to 50 hours playing this game and go, Oh, everything they talked about. I didn't really notice. Like the story of the game is gained from knowledge of the game. And then like literally going through and piecing together online theories and reading forums and watching lore videos where people have put these stories in this, like, like these specific discrete stories into these like easily digestible things that pull that they spent who knows how long working to pull everything together into like one concrete concrete story like the amount of like playthroughs i've watched of this game all the way through where someone goes through and describes every moment of lore and reads menu items is like is high i have spent probably another 50 to 100 hours watching people play this game and talk about the game as they're playing it, as I've sunk in playthroughs and readings and buying the strategy guides that talk. So it it is like it, you could play this for ten hours and go, I don't know what the fuck they were talking about. <laughs> uh, all I've been doing is uh, dying to my gun doesn't work. I don't I don't know what they're talking about. I keep shooting people and everyone keeps killing me. It feels like the gun's broken. Uh, like that that could be your experience. Um, playing this because the guns aren't there to cause damage they're there to do this like weird parry system that anyway so it's it's tough because that's why like finding someone like a peter or an andrew who got as deep into this game as i did was uh you know just kind of circle back to the concept of don't you dare was like so critical for this to kind of live on as this exciting thing because once you do get deep like anything else you want to talk about it but it's it's hard well, especially because so much of it is obtuse that you're kind of grasping at straws, but they give you just enough where you can theorize about what's happening and talking with other people about how they theorize uh, the goings-on is part of what like, well, drives the obsession. Yeah. Well, and also, like, when you're playing it, you're not really focused on the lore, especially the first time through. Yeah. Because you're like, well, that was weird. I guess they have bug monsters here. Anyway, this person with tentacles keeps fucking killing me. Like, I don't know who this guy is, but I hate him. Like, yeah. like and that, that is specifically a problem that RPGs created for Dark Souls, which is that RPGs are just like... Eh, we're in a cave. Let's throw some weird crab guys in there. Whereas, like, the Dark Souls series, the Soulsborne series, is like, no. If there's a weird crab guy, a weird bug guy, uh, a werewolf guy, there is a canonical lore reason, and it ties into other aspects of the game and the themes. Like, there's very yeah. little that's just, like, uh, uh, abstract world building. Like, oh, well, I guess this world also has crab people. Like, it's it's never that, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I, the first time you'd run into the little celestial things is in the forest. And at first you're like, why the hell are these there? They have no reason to be here. 
And they're totally, then, completely different than the game. They're different yeah. color than the wolf things yeah. and the snake and, things. Like, but then you realize that there's a like kind of a backdoor pathway from the forest to the lair of a choir member who has been experimenting on them. And so, of course, they would kind of end up in the forest at this at this basin because they are they're coming through this little hidden pathway. I love how the game refuses to waste your time. I think it's very respectful of your time, except for in one sense. Uh, I think the game is, I think the difficulty is great. I I think that there's this, there's this thing called boss runs where you need to run from specific checkpoints that you open up and you unlock. I love the unlocking of the checkpoints. But they don't put the checkpoints very often right next to the bosses. And I feel like that's a failure in almost every case there's a couple times it makes sense in the game but like i want to try bosses over and over again i don't want to try running past mobs over and over again oh i thought you were gonna say the chalice dungeons uh chalice dungeons don't exist in my i'm i'm one of those crazy people who bashed his head against the worst chalice dungeon for hours so that i could fight queen yarnum and queen yarnum is a great fight does but, the, the, I, I've been inching along with Anders helping that for like three years. Um, the the defiled whatever where it takes half your health and bullshit. No, but, like, um, Queen Yarnum is really fun. It was not worth it. <laughs> so yeah, I like this game is tough to recommend. Not not tough from I do consider it. This and Super Mario World are are uh, for different reasons. Are like definitely the games I played through the most times. I would consider them. You know, it's it's tough to say that this is my favorite video game just because I've probably beaten Super Mario World 30 times and I could pick it up right now and go through all 98 levels. Like, I love the mechanics and the level design and everything else of that game. But from a amount of... But at the end of Super Mario World, it's not like I'm like, so why did they all wear Halloween masks when I beat the Star World? I need to spend 80 hours of my life devoted to the fiction around this. Like, Super Mario World is a great game that I have fun while I'm playing. It doesn't take over my life. It never took over my life to the way that Bloodborne do- did uh, and does. Like, it wasn't... Once I started replaying it's probably been about a year, year and a half since I played the game. And once I started playing it for the show, my first thing was, fuck, I wish I had more time it- to finish this for the show. Because it is... Um, in some ways, I played enough where it's like riding a bike. But it also is like, fuck, I can't wait to get to this part. Oh, I, oh. Like, it is... It's so good and even knowing what every fucking item is that i'm about to pick up knowledge does not bring like remove the terror or remove the fun of playing i also love mario world it'll never turn you into charlie kelly trying to figure out pepe silva (laughs) so would you andrew would you say this is your favorite video game of all time uh it is definitely up there I, I, there's probably like a, about three or four that are, that swirl around my favorite, but Bloodborne's in, in there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not the game that I could pick up and play, um, and, and continue to play for forever. I think if they fixed how land, and I say fixed in a very condescending way, but like they fixed how lanterns work or just made it so that you could just, you know, drop right before a boss and just keep trying until you, you succeed it would probably be my favorite game of all time that being said it's still it's still probably my favorite game of all time (laughs) i can't think of anything that gives me the satisfying experience where like yes i'm focused on like 
how they like what carpet they put on a certain set of stairs <laughs> or why why these like why is this one brick troll wearing a cape but the other one isn't like no other game makes me uh think about that stuff uh in a way that this does and i i, I think that we're covering this for a lot of reasons one uh like aaron said i think this is probably one of the best modernizations of lovecraft's uh concepts ever done B, it's one of the best ways to engage with Lovecraftian media and avoiding a lot of the racist stuff that gets repackaged with it. And then C, I think that this is such a unique experience. I don't really rave about video games or get obsessed with video games to this level ever. No, me either. I I, I like playing games. I think they're fun, but they're like firmly like my C-list hobby. There's, they're behind movies and they're behind reading and writing. Like they're, they're like the, um, they're the hobby where I'm like, okay, everybody keeps fucking bugging me to play this. And and for that reason, I want to, or like, I'm, more... I'm going to turn my brain off. Like I am, I was, a, I'm a cutscene skipper. Like, unless it's a game where I'm investing in the story, like a mass effect or something like that. But even mass effect, I was like, yep, got the story, turn it off, on to the next one. But like, fuck, it's like, at this point, even the Tomb Raider games, I'm like, whatever. Let me go shoot and climb stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and I and I love I love playing the Tomb Raider games, but they yeah. are firmly they are firmly like I'm going to turn off the part of my brain that expects good dialogue and good characterization and, and compelling stories and, and a narrative that I care about. Yeah, and, and and all that stuff. And but Bloodborne, I don't have to make any apologies for, and I think that it's something worth recommending to people, even people that don't think they like playing hard games, because I I don't like playing hard games. I, yeah, I don't. But I've played through all three Dark Souls games and beaten them, and I've beaten Bloodborne. I've beaten other games that are in this similar genre because, like, Bloodborne emboldened me to to take them on. And I don't think I like hard games. I just like Bloodborne. <laughs> the other thing is that I mean, Bloodborne and Dark Souls—they're so well tuned. Um, like, yeah, they're hard, but they're hard in a way that's surmountable. I, recently, yeah. I was playing the new God of War. I had it on the second highest difficulty setting, and all the enemies are just like damage sponges. It takes forever to kill them, and that's not yeah. fun. And that's not really true in Bloodborne. Like enemies die in one to three hits. It's just that their hits do as much damage as your hits, which is yeah. not usually the case in uh, in case video games. And the and while Bloodborne may have made me a better video game player in general, it also uh, makes me realize when games are like just just being like bullshit and trying my patience. Like I don't actually have more patience for dying in video games. I have less. And, mm-hmm. and like if I have to do something 50 times because it was poorly designed, I'll probably quit your game. Yeah. Whereas I in Bloodborne and Dark Souls, I have less of a problem doing that because in some ways like it's. I always know what I should have done slightly different. I never, I rarely, I'm not saying I never have Dark Souls 3, um, I, but I rarely go to the game and go, that was bullshit. Like, this whole thing is bullshit. Like, there's always ways for me to to mitigate it and do a little better. And, like, so, yeah, it, it is also one of the few games where I don't get frustrated by death um, because that's that's part of that cycle. Yeah, and it- do you want to move towards final thoughts? I mean, yeah. I feel like we're there. Yes. Uh, my final, yeah. my final sort of thing on this this game and why we're fitting it into Summer of Lovecraft is that yeah, it, it, we've already said it perfectly encapsulates a lot of Lovecraftian ideals, but like, uh, and it modernizes them in an interesting way. But I love how it, it takes it to the next level. 
And yes, my, my, the best theme in it is probably like just because you you accomplish some amazing scientific goal, just because you raise the dead like in Reanimator or Charles Dexter Ward or you brought science forward like in From Beyond or, uh, you know, Call of Cthulhu or Juan Romero, like it doesn't mean you grew any closer to act actually conquering this truth of the universe to this knowledge um and you just stole a moment with the cosmos and yep. the cosmos will take back its toll from you which is what i i just fucking i just love that idea that like that lovecraft would delve into like oh well you poked around in this um and uh you're gonna get bitten and usually it would just be madness in lovecraft but this takes it to the next step it's saying like well what if the god was a little bit more custom with his punishment the madness was just a byproduct of interacting with it what if the god was was punishing you or rewarding you with something that we would see as something as a horrific fate to befall you and what could happen if you you get halfway there like with Rom the Vacuous Spider or the One Reborn or with Blood Ministrations, like you seem so close to conquering the truths of the universe. And then you just wait a little bit longer and you realize just how little you grasped. And that's why I love the idea of covering this within within this summer and why I wanted to fit it together, even though we're mostly talking about literature and uh, film. I'm, I'm yeah. drawn to this game uh, largely because I just, I love the one, like the, like the way it portrays religion but also like the idea that when you're trying to ascend to a higher plane of existence, you have like, why would you assume that those that you're trying to ascend towards are these perfect beings? Like they're just as fallible as you or me, but in a way that we can't comprehend. And when, you know, we like perform these ruthless actions in order to, uh, to get, a like a personal um some sort of like personal benefit when we don't understand what we're dealing with there's a lot of room for it to backfire and just because you think you understand how our plane of existence works doesn't mean you have any idea what you're dealing with when it comes to something so outside our realm of understanding that like knowledge of it tends to drive people crazy yeah uh, well, and that that feels so like at home with like being raised Catholic or Christian, right? Too, which is why I think Lovecraftian uh, horror and Bloodborne specifically also like they resonate with me because like how much of your time I know we're all ex-Catholics on this podcast, but I'm sure we all spend time like, hey, uh, yeah, I know he's all he's perfect and all knowing and blah blah blah. But it seems a little crazy. He just murdered everyone with that flood that one time. It's like, what well, yeah. his reasons? His reasons are he is perfect. Um, he he never makes a mistake. Everything he does is objectively good. But you know, sometimes it's hard to understand a divine being's reasons. And it's like, yeah, well, he told us that. <laughs> like, maybe he is just a crazy lunatic god with this immense power with his own agenda. And and like Lovecraftian and Bloodborne gods are very like specifically that like. There's not a concept of good or bad, although again, people, us little, uh, uh, our, the, us people on Earth have interpreted the ones that we like as good or bad, and having like, but when those those terms just don't even mean anything once you're um, on a different plane, in the same way that like, you know, us to ants or something like that, like good that we just are 
I can't talk to an ant about my idea of morality, and it's not because ants don't have a morality or theirs is, you know, they have their own systems in place too or that I can observe. Do you ever but think like, that, you know, an ant might feel that we have ang- that they have angered us when we step on one, whereas when we step on an ant, usually it's because we don't even know it's there. Yeah, exactly. Like we we are interpret ants could easily interpret intent like we're under attack as opposed to like I thought this was sand in a crack in the concrete, not like your your village. But uh, yeah, I mean that's the whole like uh, that great Futurama episode too about like that. Oh, I guess I'm a god. Okay, and mm-hmm. every everything he does like backfires while then there's people that oppose him or like well i guess if you decide to murder all of us your your ways of thinking are beyond what we can understand and but yeah i really so i, I that speaks to me wholly and then you know on a personal note i'll just say like uh peter and i i think also really wanted to cover this uh, and andrew was the only guest that made sense but mm-hmm. um for so many different reasons but like you know peter and i probably wouldn't have found excuses to talk so much if it wasn't something that we were this obsessed over. And that conversation led to a lot more uh, interactions outside of Bloodborne with personal sharing and getting to know each other as people. uh, And then eventually uh, starting this podcast and Andrew as well. Like I consider Andrew, you know, it's always so funny when you talk to people about like, Oh yeah, they're my friends I've met on the internet, which is, uh, you know, something that does happen has happened to me a lot in the last a few years through like the dissolve group, but it is something that, that still feels silly to say, but like Andrew and I started talking so much about bloodborne. And then that led to more discussions about personal things in our life. And like, I consider uh, Andrew a real friend and I consider obviously Peter a, uh, a real friend as well that we've like, it, it is weird that without, and that's why we, we called this the don't you dare prequel. Like, the podcast that you're listening to and all the other episodes, some good, some bad, uh, wouldn't exist without Bloodborne, weirdly enough. It was the first thing that uh, I said to my newish friend, like, hey, I think I understand what you like enough to say you need to do this thing. And then him doing that thing led to, uh, you know, that's that's like what art can be. And it's like best incarnation is like, deepen both the understanding of the human condition but also like form bonds with fellow people who who experience art or enjoy the same art um that that you do and that you know repeated as well later on with andrew as well so it also felt like a weird like origins episode of this podcast to do i'm i'm glad we got to cover it because uh it just it feels like us never talking about this this game would have felt like there's a big missing piece to the puzzle uh, hmm. in our podcast as a whole. Well, I was happy to happy to be asked to be on this. I always I will take any opportunity to talk about Bloodborne. <laughs> yeah, we we uh when we were talking about we usually do don't you dare as just uh Aaron and me. It's just like a chance for us to dick around. We don't have to be experts on the thing. Um, which we we are not experts on Bloodborne. I don't think any of us three are experts on Bloodborne, and yet we've all played through it multiple times. Um, uh, I think if there was a thing I was an expert on, though, it might be Bloodborne compared to everything else. Yeah, <laughs> it is one of those things that I feel I could talk more confidently about than most of my professional achievements. Mine uh, is Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, I, I've had no notes, and I could probably talk about this for eight more hours about specific things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I just, I just, I, I think that um, we're just so we're so happy to bring you in, especially because like you were part of this journey with us, and and I hope that we can kind of, in a very sickening sense, expand out our shepherdship to more people and, and infect more of the population with this beast plague. Uh, oh, I, I have multiple people who I've brought into this, and uh, with varying levels of success. <laughs> Yeah, past uh, guest of the show, Ryan Boland, I also brought him uh, into the world, and I was infuriated at bosses that he tackled in, like, one go. <laughs> um, definitely did not make me incredibly angry when he tackled the Shadows of Yarnum in, like, two goes. <laughs> I one of, one of my guys says that he beat Lawrence the first vicar without any assistance, and I'm I, I'm still not sure if I believe him. Yeah, that sounds like someone saying their uncle works at Nintendo. It's just one of those yeah. things that you know kids say. So I I did that, uh, and I also beat Lawrence and Orphan of Koss on my first try. Uh, but okay. that wow. good night. <laughs> but having said that, I I don't know what it was. But the second playthrough when I went to Orphan Acosta took me 50 tries. I was like, what the fuck? How did I do this? The first? You know, but that's like the game. It's like, oh, just because I could beat it once, like, that was my one lucky shot. Because uh, a million things could go wrong. But, Peter, I think that's the first time you and I ever spoke. Speaking of, like... Yeah, I heard uh, each other's voices. Heard each other's voices was, um, you were having trouble with Lawrence, right? And I jumped into your game and we beat him together. And, like, uh, at the end, you're like, we couldn't get the audio working. And you're like, I don't know if that was you, but I just beat Lawrence. <laughs> it was really me like Facebook. phone sex because you got to yeah. hear me go. <sighs> and then I just swept the rest of the game. I, I knocked out Garman, like, first go. I knocked out Celestial. or Not Celestial Emissary. What was the last guy? Abritus. No. Uh, yeah, I did not knock oh, out Abritus because at that point I was, like, level 125 or yeah. something. Um, and then I knocked out, I just like, I, you were still on the phone. I just like ran through all the rest of the game. So I was like, all right, yeah. let's, let's do it tonight. And, and I just watched shot. like, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I just like one shot at everybody because at that, after Orphan of Cost, I was like, all right, take a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. And I just watched. So it really was like our first, we love to watch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, yeah so, so, so so thank you so much uh, for coming on, Andrew. This was this was a lot of fun, and we got I got like lost in thought in a way we don't always get with these uh, these episodes. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good time. I enjoyed being here. Yeah, this was a blast, and we'll definitely have you back on. We love to watch uh, soon as well. But yeah, like we could we could not have you on for the Bloodborne episode. So uh, for next week, uh, so we're recording this a little bit early into our uh, double Lovecraft month. But we don't know when we're going to release it as part of that. So all I'll say is next week could be uh, a new month. It could be another Lovecraft episode. Uh, but no matter what, I guarantee you, it will be a We Love to Watch episode. So uh, whatever that is, I hope it's a good one. <laughs> we produce a lot of garbage. Uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, good night. And good luck. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If 
committed to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>